Well, almost every nation has a fairly similar understanding of what constitutes a crime. They differ, though, on how they rank the severity of those crimes. And so one way you can tell how a nation or a culture ranks a crime is by looking at the, the prison sentence associated with it. So in America, for example, what's the worst crime? Well, murder, you can tell it has the greatest minimum sentence of 25 years. But that is matched by the aggravated sexual assault of a minor. Home invasion has a 10-year minimum, while kidnapping only has a one-year minimum. Manslaughter has a five-year minimum, as does first-degree robbery with a deadly weapon. It's just a sampling, but it shows you, and it stands to reason, that the penalties attached to a crime show you how a given nation or culture views the seriousness of that crime. And it's not surprising, it's the same with God, only his standard of justice is perfect. In the Old Testament, God gave Israel his law, and his law reflects his sense of justice. Just keep in mind, for Israel, they were a theocratic nation, which means just imagine if church and state were one and the same. That was Old Testament Israel. And so his law had a lot to say about punishing crimes like murder, like theft, but it also had a lot to say about spiritual crimes. That was part of his law code, like Sabbath violations or impure worship. But to God, do you know what was one of the worst spiritual crimes? It would be false teaching. God instructed his people to regard false prophets as uh, criminals, enemies of the state. And you can instantly tell how seriously God views that spiritual crime by the penalty associated with it, which we read this morning. And that would be the death penalty. Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 both prescribe the death penalty for the verified false prophet. That's how seriously God takes it when someone claims to speak for him, but actually doesn't. Now, the church today is not theocratic Israel, and in America, false teaching is not a crime. This is the blessing and the curse of America. We have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, which is a good thing, but it has also meant the proliferation of false teachers. It's been kind of open season for false teaching in America for 250 years. Anyone can say anything, make any claim, start their own religion. It's kind of no holds barred. That's why America has birthed countless religions, ideologies, worldviews, cults. It's really only in America would you ever get something like Scientology. Scientology is wild. It has its own creation account. It starts with Xenu, who is the ruler of a galactic confederation of 76 planets. They were dealing with overpopulation, so he froze billions of his people to capture their souls. These souls are called Thetans, and then he took them to Earth as a prison planet and implanted them deep in volcanoes. These Thetans became trapped in physical forms, living countless lives as they evolved from creature to creature. And humans today are the latest embodiment of Thetans. And only Scientology can enable you to reveal your inner Thetan and reach a higher plane of existence. But it's going to cost you, it'll cost you several hundreds of thousands of dollars to purchase all the teaching to acquire this knowledge to free your mind. All of this is solely based on the writings of one man, the founder L. Ron Hubbard. Hubbard was a failing science fiction writer, but he had an epiphany. He's on record saying this, quote, you don't get rich writing science fiction. If you want to get rich, you start a religion, end quote. Now, you probably think this is just the cost of freedom, Freedom of religion, right? You're going to have a few crazy people, but I mean, no one's really going to fall for this. Countless people aren't going to 
they're going to be able to tell this is clearly like a money-making scheme. But hundreds of thousands of people fall for this stuff. And things are no different in the church. False teachers have found an open market, and millions have proven to be quite gullible. They'll just believe what someone says without any discernment. At the same time, false teachers prove quite clever in masking their deception. This is why the New Testament is filled with so many warnings against false teachers. Just about every letter has something to say about this. And we're told to be on guard because they don't advertise their identity. They don't let you know they're coming. Listen to this quick sampling. 2 Peter 2.1 says false teachers secretly introduce destructive heresies. Galatians 2.4, Paul warns against false brethren secretly brought in. Jude 4 says they've already crept in unnoticed. And 2 Corinthians 11.13 says they disguise themselves as apostles of Christ, servants of righteousness. So a, a ruse is at hand. And all those sheep who are unassuming and unaware, they're going to be swindled to their own ruin. And so we're told you, you better open your eyes. You better beware. This, in fact, was the message we heard from Christ himself last week. We're going through Matthew. We studied last week, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, where Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We're told foremost to beware false prophets, not just observe them, but be on guard against them because they're dangerous. They can, they're a threat of spiritual, eternal harm. They come in sheep's clothing, which we learn means they're not disguising themselves really as sheep. They're, they're coming disguised as shepherds. They pretend to be friendly shepherds, but in reality, Jesus says they're ravenous wolves, swindlers who will deceive the flock, usually for selfish gain. This is a sober warning. It, uh, warning. It's already happened times without number. The church today still needs to beware. To help with this, Jesus follows up by telling us how to spot the false teacher. Now, how can you beware if you don't know what you're looking for? They, they come disguised. They're not advertising. How can we identify them so as to beware? He tells us the remainder of the passage, which we also studied last week, but I'll read again. It says in verse 16, right after, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he says again, so then you will know them by their fruits. Twice he says for clear emphasis that the way you will spot the false teachers by their fruits. It's obviously a metaphor for what comes out of them. Their true identity is going to be revealed by their words and their deeds. Throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has shown us what righteous kingdom living looks like. The false teacher is going to show you the opposite. Those who are uncovered by their bad fruit are thereafter to be rejected. And for a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. Now Jesus knows wolves will constantly be seeking to infiltrate and harm his flock even after he leaves and ascends. Which is why he gives us this serious ongoing warning. But in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's speaking broadly, generally. He tells us twice to spot the false teacher by their fruit. But he never stops 
to define what he means by fruit in any detail beyond calling it good or bad, righteous or evil. However, the rest of the Bible has a lot to say about that. Dozens of passages tell us in great detail precisely what the bad fruit of the false teacher looks like. And so we've returned today to explore some of those passages that we might be better equipped to, to heed Christ's warning, which is beware, beware the false prophet. You will know them by their fruit. And I really think the church today needs this all the more so, this equipping, because there have never been more false teachers. And they've never had such a wide reach with TV, with the internet. They now can influence millions of people. Throughout most of church history, a false teacher might infiltrate a small parish of 30 people and lead them astray, which is already tragic, but it just pales in comparison to the reach today. Millions of people. And when you look up the most populous churches here and abroad, the most viewed YouTube sermons, the most listened to podcasts, most of the top hits are false teachers. Their influence is pervasive and oppressive. With mass media, God's people have access to unlimited voices, teachers, leaders. That, that can be a good thing, but it can be a bad thing. They all claim to speak for God. This is why the church today needs multiplied discernment and multiplied equipping to do what Jesus says. This is a command for us. Beware the false teacher. How do you do that? Well, this equipping comes from God's word. So we're going to study this morning. And so with this in mind, I want to show you six key fruits that you must examine so as to spot a false teacher. Six key fruits in in greater detail that you must examine to spot a false teacher. And the scripture truly says so much about this topic that we're only going to cover the first three today, the next three next week. There's just so much. But let's begin with the first fruit, which would be their character. Their character. We have to start with character. Character is a natural place to start because according to scripture, this is what qualifies the spiritual leader in the first place. So take your Bibles, open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3 to begin with. We'll be looking at many passages this morning. But the Lord himself determined that after he ascended, his church would be led long-term by men serving as under-shepherds. This office of spiritual leadership is variously titled elder, pastor, overseer. Those three terms are interchangeable, just the one office of the the primary spiritual leadership of the church. But this office of leadership influences, it's not for everybody, but there are certain requirements for the position. Now, when the world measures leadership potential, what do they look for? What makes a good CEO or boss? Probably the top thing to the world is just, just results. They want proven sales, proven revenue, proven management skills. I mean, do you get results? Yeah, your wife might be pregnant and you might be in the midst of divorcing her for your mistress, but if you can make the company a lot of money, you're qualified. Not so with the church. The Lord's apostles gave several sets of qualifications for the elder, pastor, overseer. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, Acts 20. They all say the same thing, give the same approach. They have really nothing to do with results with skill sets. They're all about character. 
With the one exception of being able to teach as the, the primary, uh, one of the primary roles of the leader is to feed the flock with the word of God. Apart from that, it's all about just their character, their Christ-like character. Let's, let's read this list in 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7. Give you just one of the sets of qualifications for the spiritual leader. It says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And verse 6, not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So here we see really the first step when evaluating any teacher should always be just to examine their character, not not results. It does not matter how big your church is. That says nothing about your qualifications. That's never the measure of success in scripture. It It doesn't matter how many books you sold, how many online hits your message has. Results really count for nothing. The Lord measures the quality of his true servants by their character. Now, this, of course, takes some careful observation to determine over time. So Paul says you must not be a new convert. You need that proven character over time here. And to outside observers, that can be hard to determine. To church members, it shouldn't be a problem. Remember, the, the whole paradigm of Scripture for the New Testament believers is that they're all going to belong to some local church. That means that the elders and the pastors of that local church will be their primary shepherds, their Bible teachers. And so they'll have the time to observe their lives, see them in their homes, get to know them, consult with their associates, uh, evaluate their character. It's a little more difficult today, though, because so many Christians put themselves under the influence of, of remote teachers, you know, online or internet, TV teachers, preachers, whom they don't know, they've never met. This teacher has no idea they even exist. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Teaching is good, but you need to be extra careful with that. That person might be a great Bible teacher, sure, but we're going to talk about examining the words of the teacher later. But you need to be cautious about circumventing this first fruit of what qualifies a spiritual leader or teacher, which is his character. Overall, the best thing you can do here to equip yourself in discerning true from false teachers is just to be thoroughly studying these elder qualifications here, elsewhere in scripture. Get to know them. What does the real thing look like? Do you know how they they still train bankers today to to spot counterfeit $100 bills? My sister was a banker for a while, confirmed this is still true. But primarily it's by studying the real thing. They spend a lot of time immersing themselves, studying in the knowledge of what does an authentic $100 bill looks like. That way, when they see a bill and they recognize something's off, they'll know they have a counterfeit. And so it goes with recognizing the character of a teacher. And just over time, their character is going to come out. So do you know what to look for? 
I think a perfect example of this and one to learn from would be that of the prominent pastor, Mark Driscoll. He had a stunning rise to fame at the helm of a Seattle megachurch, Mars Hill. Much of his teaching was orthodox, even staunchly Calvinistic. But for many of us outside observers, even very early on, we could tell like something was off. This does not look like an authentic $100 bill. Something is wrong here. The elder we just read is supposed to be what? Temperate, prudent, respectable, gentle, peaceable, not pugnacious. And those who just observed Driscoll saw that he was consistently the opposite. Rude, crass, coarse, arrogant, boastful, using shock statements and profanity from the pulpit. I'm not sure if he was in it for the money, but ego, pride were very obviously behind the driving wheel. When you spend, when you take $210,000 of church money, use that to pay an undercover marketing firm to then secretly buy thousands of copies of your new book to guarantee it gets on the New York Times bestseller list, you know you have someone who's more concerned with their name than Christ's name. And yes, he did that. Eventually, the counselor, Paul Tripp, was brought in to give an outsider's perspective into the Mars Hill ministry back then. He concluded this, quote, This is without a doubt the most abusive, coercive ministry culture I've ever been involved, involved with, end quote. In 2014, with the evidence being overwhelming, Mars Hill elders finally found Driscoll disqualified for arrogance, pride, domineering, controlling, bullying behavior, going so far as to threaten and coerce people with physical force. But the thing is, like, this was all obvious from the beginning. This was his character from the beginning. That should have been plain to see. But the thing is, when people generate results and revenue, people tend to turn a blind eye to all these character issues. We can't be that way. If you want another practical way to examine the character of a spiritual leader, examine his children. And this is fair game. Because Paul says so, right? Paul says the elder must keep his children under control with all dignity and manage his household well. In Titus 1, he he adds, he must have faithful children not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And the thing about character is that there's no hiding it at home. You can can hide it in public, but at home, the the jig is up. It's going to come out, and it will be reflected in children. There's no promise that the children of believers or pastors will automatically, uh, automatically be saved. No, but their basic obedience will reflect the man's shepherding ability. No one's expecting perfect kids, but just like Paul says, right? Under control, not rebellious, not wildly disobedient. This doesn't mean every spiritual leader with out-of-control kids is a false teacher, but it does mean he should not hold the office of elder pastor. If he can't manage to positively influence and lead a small flock who sees his truest character, he should not be leading the larger flock. The apostles are not setting some impossible standard for spiritual leaders here. We're not talking about perfection. No one has arrived in total Christ-likeness. All elders and pastors are still sinners in need of frequent repentance and spiritual growth. But the point is, they should evidence a greater progress in such spiritual growth to be qualified to serve as Christ's under-shepherds. And all, just look to character first. Let that lesson be deeply ingrained in you. Don't 
be impressed by the pomp, the circumstance, the show, the appearance. Look through all that to a man's character first. Teaching matters. The measure of their words is a huge deal. We'll see that more really next week. But you know, false teachers can play all sorts of games with their words. You know, times I've heard a, a false teacher say the right thing in front of a skeptical audience just to put them at ease. Words can be twisted, but you can't so easily hide and twist character. It's just, it's going to come out over time. And you need to look for that. And don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by the, the rhetorical skill of a given teacher. I think too many Christians are taken in by a preacher or author or blogger. It just sounds good. Their message is, is clever or catchy. Their delivery is passionate and engaging. But they never stop to consider the teacher's character. But just don't be fooled by, by rhetoric. It was Aristotle, way back in the day, who was the first to astutely observe that the three methods of rhetoric. I'm talking about persuasive communication. How do you convince someone of something? He observed these three pillars of ethos, pathos, and logos. And in reverse order, logos, that's an appeal to logic. So are you trying to persuade people with reasons, with facts? You're using truth claims to try and convince them of something. Next is pathos. That's an appeal to emotion. It's where you're trying to convince people to follow you by your own emotional investment and trying to elicit an emotional response in them as well. But pathos concerns your passion in leadership. Finally, ethos is an appeal to ethics. And this speaks of the authority or credibility of the speaker. In short, is he a hypocrite? Does his life match his teaching and his passion or not? Let's say you you go see an investor because you want to learn how to invest some of your uh, extra money. This investor is telling you you need to put all your money in gold. He's trying to convince you with reason, with logos. He's telling you like the, he's showing you chart after chart. The dollar's about to crash. It's going down. Put all your money in gold before it's too late. He has a lot of pathos as well. He's super passionate about this. He's, he sounds convincing. He's stoking your fears. You don't want to be left out when the dollar crashes and the stock market with it. You don't know so much. It, it sounds convincing and you're almost convinced, but What if you learn this investor is currently undergoing bankruptcy for mismanaging other people's funds? What if you learn that his own money, he was investing in stocks and bonds, not gold? Would you still think him a good investor? Would you trust him and and take his advice? Hopefully not. He's clearly a hypocrite, a fraud, a false investor. and, And so it goes with the false teacher. They have no character credibility. But sadly, I think the average person doesn't really know or care about ethos or character. They're easily fooled by enough logos and pathos. They go to church and this preacher, he's an amazing public speaker. He's a good communicator. He's funny. He's engaging. He's passionate. His message is clever. It has all these one-liners that are just asking to be uh, retweeted. He tugs at your heartstrings with personal stories and anecdotes. And on top of all this, there's amazing production value, the lights, the sounds, the graphics. It's all, it's all top-notch. None of this makes him a false teacher. But the point is, don't be fooled by all this rhetoric. You have to look past just basic appearances. And the first place you need to look as you look past all the, the fluff that's never even mentioned in the Bible, 
First place you have to look is his character. Does he have credibility? Does he practice what he preaches? Does he live out the Christian faith? Does he follow Christ? Does he evidence the elder qualifications? I think we can leave it there. We've hit this first point enough, but Jesus said you will know the good tree by its fruit. And the first fruit you need to be looking for is a leader's character. So start there. And then secondly, you can move on to their conduct. Secondly, their conduct. Because very much related to character is conduct. Now we're talking their actual deeds. And there's an interconnected relationship between character and conduct. They always really go together. I mean, one of the main ways you know someone's character is by looking at their conduct over time. Can't see a person's heart. And if you don't really know them, it's going to be hard to, to know their character, but you can, you can see their actions, their deeds. That, that speaks, speaks pretty loudly. And this is what Jesus primarily has in mind in our original passage back from Matthew 7. And he said, speaking of false prophets, twice you will know them by their fruits. And obviously he's using fruit as a metaphor to speak of something else. And the primary referent to the fruit metaphor throughout scripture is a person's conduct, their actions, their deeds. You can hop over now to John 15. I trust most of you already know this, so we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but John 15, Jesus affirms this. He frequently uses this fruit metaphor to speak of a person's conduct. Specifically, we're talking about the righteous deeds that should come out of his life as he lives by faith. We all know Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, we're saved by grace through faith. Apart from works, we're saved apart from works, but we are also saved for works, as Ephesians 2, 10 says. That God is glorified when his people live out their saving faith through deeds of righteousness. And Jesus taught this in John 15. You know the analogy. He's the vine, we're the branches. If, if you know him, if you're in him, you abide by him, or abide in him, rather, by faith, then you're going to bear fruit. He says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do, that. You can do nothing. The grace of Christ should transform how we live. And if you see in a person's life, you see no fruit. Not seeing any evidence of a changed life matching the person's profession. What does that tell you? It tells you this person is not abiding in Christ. Their faith looks more dead than alive. And so the warning of verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. Reflecting the same thing Jesus said about false teachers in Matthew 7, verse 19, he said of them, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Fruit is not the basis of our salvation, but it plays a a pretty big role in the proof of our salvation, the proof of our faith. So Jesus says next, verse 8, he says, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is the evidence, the proof that you're a disciple. And it glorifies God, you're bearing much fruit. It's not how we're saved. You're saved by faith in Christ alone. But 
The proof of that saving faith is going to be this fruit. Now, he's still using fruit metaphorically. He hasn't told us what he's talking about. But in the next verse, he finally connects the dots to reveal what he means by fruit. And he's talking about obeying God's commands. Obedience to the will of God. Verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. And then verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. As has been said before, how does God spell love? O-B-E-Y. Down to verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Back in chapter 14, verse 15 of John. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is the proof that your life has changed. Your faith is real. You are following the Lord. Conduct, therefore, is a very important measure of the reality of someone's saving faith. It's true across the board for every believer. It's equally true, more emphatically true than for the teacher, for the leader. And this fact should be should definitely be applied when examining the teacher, the leader. Does he have good fruit? Does he prove he's a disciple and a, and a teacher? I mean, regarding a spiritual leader, how do you know they are of God, that they're under shepherds of Christ? Here we would say, well, examine, examine their fruit. You'll know them by their fruits. Do you find good fruit or bad? Do you find a pattern of good, godly, righteous deeds just spilling out of them or a consistent pattern of ungodly, unrighteous deeds coming from them. And keep in mind, you have to go by Scripture's definition of right living. The world's definition is changing fast. Morality is being flipped on its head. Used to be 20 years ago, uh, there are many vices that are now considered virtues. Unthinkable vices 20 years ago, now it's a virtue. But we stick with God's timeless pattern of righteousness found in His Word. So you want a picture then of what what does bad fruit actually look like? Like deeds of unrighteousness, deeds of the flesh. Well, that's where you go to a place like Galatians 5. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Let me read that for you. Paul tells us that from the desires of the flesh come the deeds of the flesh, which look like what? He says the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. No one's saying that any teacher who ever once is jealous or angry is then instantly disqualified. And Paul says it's the one who practices such things. This is the habit, the pattern of their life without repentance, without fruit. He says such a person is not even entering the kingdom. So would you then follow this person to lead you to the kingdom? Didn't Jesus say something else about the blind following the blind? You should instead hope to see evidence of good fruit. What does this good fruit look like now? These good deeds? How about what he says next, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. <clears throat> we'll say again, you, you can't hold pastors or spiritual leaders to some standard of 
sinlessness, none would be qualified. But at the same time, they should evidence plenty of good fruit on their tree. And practically speaking, we, we need not set the bar impossibly high, just use biblical standards. But at the same time, we can't set that standard too low. And I think that is what has happened in our Christian culture in America today, that the bar for the accepted spiritual leader is very low. I mean, a pastor goes on a bender or gets arrested for drunk driving or confesses to adultery. So he's put on leave. He's sent to rehab. Three to six months later, he's back. He's just back in the pulpit. That does not fly. You should never accept that. There is unlimited forgiveness for the repentant fallen minister, but we don't need to set the bar for ministry that low. I mean, is that the type of person you want to entrust your soul to for care, for guidance? Now, when it comes to identifying out the outright false teacher, I think one vice, one bad fruit that seems to consistently show up and to be aware of would be sensuality or sexual morality. You can't deny that. There's just something about it. We all have the sinful flesh. The sinful flesh comes with its corrupt desires. Those desires want to take us outside of God's good bounds, often sexually, the bounds he created within marriage. You know, spiritual leaders have a long history of using their power and authority to satisfy those desires. Anytime you see that rotten fruit and its evidence, beware and, and turn away. Now I want you to go to 2 Peter chapter 2 to see this. Again, this morning, we're just trying to study the breadth of scriptures to be further equipped on how to spot the false teacher. That's all we're trying to do. And 2 Peter 2 gives us their profile. But I want you to notice here, just in the sampling, how many times their sensuality shows up. This sexual theme. 2 Peter chapter 2. Sorry, in verse 1, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Word for sensuality speaks of debauchery, perversion, sexual excess. Same word he uses down in verse 7 to describe the men who were trying to oppress Lot when they were coming after him. What do such false teachers do? Verse 10, he says, they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desire. Galatians 5.24 says the true believer crucifies the flesh with its passions and desires. There's nothing good there. But these false teachers, they indulge the flesh with those desires. They might put on a show, but their conduct will eventually give them away. Some, though, there are some, they barely conceal their immorality. Go down to verse 13 in the middle. He says, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Down to verse 18. It says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those 
who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And Peter is really laying out the profile and the conduct of the false teacher in this passage. And it's just, it's all rotten fruit. But you see how sensuality keeps showing up. It's this big red flag. When you see any of these things, while the man claims to be of God, speak for God, beware, don't listen, turn away. Another telltale example to learn from was the popular Hillsong megachurch pastor, Carl Lentz. He's known for this lavish lifestyle, wearing clothes more expensive than the average income of a congregant. He catered to celebrities, showing them much partiality. But it worked. You know, thousands flee, uh, flocked to Hillsong, finding this is modern, it's appealing, it's attractive. And all that applied personally to Lentz, who often dressed in a very like, sensual manner. I mean, long before his disqualification, it was immediately obvious this guy's trying to be like a sex symbol from the pulpit, except they don't, they don't have pulpits, but you know what I'm saying. But I even remember hearing like secular people, unbelievers mocking him, like this guy is clearly a phony just from his central dress, his central behavior, like there's something clearly off here. And so in 2020, when it was revealed that even though married, he had a long adulterous relationship with a Muslim woman and had pursued many women, there's no surprise there. It's, it's sad. It's tragic. It's not shocking. Not to the discerning, at least. Sadly, though, thousands were like the blind following the blind. They were shocked. Their faith was rocked. It doesn't have to be this way. If just the church would open its eyes and examine the fruit of its teachers and leaders. We have time to cover one more fruit here this morning by which you can spot a false teacher. Again, we're going to save the remaining three for next week. The reason I'm splitting these up, though, is I really want you to see for yourselves the breadth of Scripture on this issue. There are just so many verses warning us against false teachers and, and many stripes. We're not majoring on minors here. To God, this is a major issue. Satan is the father of lies. His servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness when they're not. And so, again, we, we, just, we need all the equipping we can get to spot them and to obey Christ's command. Beware false prophets. You'll know them by their fruits. One more key fruit is, number three, their checkbook. Their checkbook. And you know what this means. This fruit is just one of those dead giveaways. It's just an instant giveaway of a false teacher. And that's because there's no shortage of verses throughout the Old and New Testaments that continually reveal probably the top hidden motive of the false teacher, and that would be financial gain, money. This goes back to Balaam, the archetype of the false prophet, who was a prophet for hire, hired by Balak to curse Israel. Others ever since found that you know, being a prophet can turn quite a prophet, pun intended. Give it a second. Give it a second. But the spiritual leaders of Israel, they, they were no different. So God rebuked them. Listen to Ezekiel 34, verses 2 and 3. To the shepherds of Israel, God says, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? He says, You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. And he's not actually talking about sheep. He was, these, these priests, these elders, these leaders were taking the people for what they're worth. 
money itself, it's not special. It's what it represents, which is the gateway to your every desire. Power, influence, possessions, pleasure, fulfillment, you name it. Money can buy it. And so men, they seek and serve money because they're really just seeking and serving themselves. Usually those desires of the flesh that we're supposed to crucify. But just like Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God and wealth. You can't. So if you see a spiritual leader who has been mastered by wealth, contrary to the elder qualifications, he has a love of money. His God is money. Well, you know he's not a servant of God. The New Testament likewise reveals that a sure sign of a false teacher is greed. This is a key false fruit to look for. If you're still in 2 Peter 3, or 2 Peter 2, look at verse, back to verse 3. Again, he's talking about these false teachers. He says, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Down to verse 14, he adds, he says, they have hearts trained in greed. Similar to 2 Timothy 3, I'll read for you, verses 1 through 2. He says, realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And down to verse 5, he says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. He says, avoid such men as these. We're told to avoid them. And he's talking about, again, the false teacher in that chapter. The, the biblical elder pastor is to be the opposite. Yes, that the laborer is worthy of his wages. First Timothy 5 teaches and prescribes that the true man of God is able to, to make a basic living off of the gospel, being supported by a local church. That's a good thing, but such leaders must never be driven by the love of money or personal gain. Listen to the three verses here. First Peter 5, 2. The elder is told to shepherd the flock of God among you, not for sordid gain but with eagerness. Listen to 2 Corinthians 2.17. And Paul says, We are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. This is not for gain. We're not preaching for advantage. And here's a big one. Acts 20.33-35. Again, this is Paul testifying to the elders of the Ephesian church as he departs from them. And he says to them, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And that passage of Paul's example of a selfless generous minister. That should be the death knell to prosperity preachers. The man of God should be supported by the local church, but he in turn should be generous, hardworking, ready to share, not greedy, not peddling the word of God, not in it for the money. And so all this means when you see any so-called preacher or so-called prophet who evidences the opposite, when you see greed and covetousness, now run the other direction. Don't listen to that person. This is probably the most obvious fruit, I would say, yet millions are still deceived. Just turn on TBN. You'll, you'll, see the false, you'll see the parade of all these false teachers. And it's always the same message 
it's always about money. They're not preaching the word. It's almost always like fundraising disguised as preaching. It's, it's you know, you know how it goes. You, the message is you person need to sow a seed in faith, right? You, you need to give to the ministry and don't hold back. Don't be cheap. Give that thousand dollars, that seed sown in faith will reap a bountiful harvest. Somehow God in his power will, will turn that money to you tenfold, a hundredfold. You'll reap a harvest. What's always so amazing to me is how like easily this seems to work. How people watch on TV and just send their checks in. They're so blind, so gullible, so desperate. They're giving to this spiritual lottery system, hoping that they'll strike it rich. They're motivated by their own love of money or desperation. But you know what happens. They go broke. The televangelist gets rich. How do you think Joel Osteen has a net worth of $60 million? Or Joyce Meyer, $25 million. Benny Hinn, $42 million. And Kenneth Copeland, $760 million. He's got it perfected. And there are many, many more. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but if any pastor or leader tries to get you to fund his opulent lifestyle, his house, his mansion, his car, his boat, uh, you know you have a false teacher. It, it is that simple. This is a dead giveaway fruit. And I have to include this because it's such a perfect yet so sad example of this. Just a couple weeks ago, there's a, a Missouri pastor who made headlines for berating his own church because they did not buy him an expensive watch. And he was preaching a sermon that was all about honoring God's shepherds. But then he scolded them because they were broke, their giving was poor, and they failed to buy them this watch. And he says this quote in the sermon. He says, you can buy a Movado at Sam's Club. And you know, I asked for one last year. And here, here it is all the way in August. And I still ain't got it. End quote. And the extra sad part is if you watch the sermon, which you can, you hear people saying amen and giving words of affirmation in the congregation. It's times like these, you all should be thankful I'm pretty cheap. <laughs> I can be satisfied with Taco Bell gift cards. I guess that was a good one. <laughs> now, I know we're, we're picking on low-hanging fruit here, but in this whole sermon, I, I want you to understand something. that This is all part of heeding Christ's main command to us. And beware false prophets. It really is, though, a, a serious command. A serious command that we are to obey. You know, you might think this whole discussion is just too critical, too harsh, too negative. But... We just don't have the luxury of digging our heads in the sand and pretending this issue will go away. Ignoring these things, Jesus himself compels us to open our eyes to identify the false teacher. Paul says, avoid such men, reject them. We must do this. Is it okay to do this by name? Isn't that mean? Well, we're not trying to protect the reputation of the wolves in sheep's clothing. We are told to unmask them. How else can we be on guard against them if we don't unmask them? How else can we warn those in love who are trapped under their teaching? In the end here, we're just trying to be biblical. We've only studied the scriptures to heed Christ's command and the apostles' instructions. And speaking of the apostles, think about Paul. Do you know how far Paul went in warning the church against false teachers? He said in 1 Timothy 5.20 that Disqualified elders should be rebuked in the presence of all, that the rest might be fearful of sinning. 
This is not a behind-closed-door matter. This is, you're a public figure. You get a public rebuke. And he also took it upon himself many times to name names. How else are the sheep going to be warned and on guard? Listen to this, 2 Timothy 4.10. He says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. 2 Timothy 1.15. All who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. 1 Timothy 1.19.20. He says, Some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. 2 Timothy 2.17. He says that the false teacher, their talk will spread like gangrene, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. I mean, the, the stakes are too high to not call out the wolves in sheep's clothing. We are to have extreme patience with all manner of straying sheep. Tons of patience and grace for the straying sheep, but little to no patience with the wolf. We just can't tolerate the wolves. You've learned this morning just how much God's word has to say about this issue. And we're not even done, but already equip yourself with this knowledge. Jesus said that the way to life is narrow, is extremely narrow. And there are already just a few who find it. We can't afford any deviations. So be on guard against those who would seek to pull you away from Christ's way. Let's pray together. Our great God, we, we do pray together as your church body, asking for your, your protection against the false teacher. We're thankful that we're in the good hands of the good shepherd, that none can snatch us from his hands. Uh, we're safe as we abide in him by faith and bear fruit. He secures us. We thank you for your preserving power. Ask, and we ask you to help us in our own selves to continue to stand firm. And part of that, though, is, is being equipped to be on guard against the, the false teacher, the false prophet. And there are many. There are always more of, of the false than the true. And so, though these things can sometimes be difficult, challenging, uncomfortable to study, that it's in your word for a reason. You have not been silent on this issue. We cannot ourselves be silent on this issue. We must open our eyes and just be careful, discerning. We always want to extend love and grace and, and compassion, patience to our fellow brother, sister, a fellow sinner who strays, who wanders, who doubts. But we can have no similar patience with the wolf. This must be identified, rebuked, and, and rejected. So give us the, the wisdom, the discernment to judge rightly, to judge your body rightly, to be careful, to be discerning, and to be wise. You've sent us out still as sheep in the midst of wolves. Help us to be innocent as doves, yet shrewd as serpents. We need your word to constantly fill and guide us to help us to be driven by your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.